Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. Guess what is older than I am? Well, I can name a number of things. The, uh, the new liturgy. edition of the Roman Missal. That is older than you it are. It will be 50 this year. Mm-hmm. I will also be 50 <laughs> this year. And Pope Francis will write a nice letter about me, just as he wrote a nice letter about the Roman Missal. Many, many insights from Pope Francis, not really known as a liturgical pope, but nonetheless, said some pretty darn good stuff. All right, so this week we dive into that, a little bit of a break from Sacrosanto Concilium. So without further ado, episode 23 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Woe to us if we do not talk about Pope Francis. What, I, what are we talking about? We're talking about Pope Francis. Oh, we are. We are. Because you know what? We're not making this up, and Pope Francis is not making it up either. Say what you want. I know everybody's got an opinion about everything, including Pope Francis, but we are going to talk about some stuff that may just blow your mind today, Jesse. I'm ready for it. Woohoo! Put your, should I start recording? Put your explosion <laughs> cap on. Yes, you should. <laughs> and I know you have. You know what we're going to talk about? <gasps> Take a breath. Address of His Holiness Pope Francis to the participants at the Plenary Assembly of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline. Almost got it. And the Discipline of the Sacraments. (laughs) That sounds like a Home Shopping Network disclaimer. Isn't it like a disclaimer? Only applicable to Canada and Daisy and Hawaii. That's right. What? (laughs) Only applicable at the address of His Holiness Pope Francis to the participants of the Plenary Assembly of the Congregation for Divine Worship. All right, why don't you start there? What is a plenary assembly of the Congregation for Divine Worship? Well, the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments is a curial office that's in charge of regulating uh, the sacraments, right? They put out books, they answer questions, things like that. I don't know, what what is a plenary assembly? When he explained explained that for you, was was that like a plenary indulgence? He was indulging you? Plenary means full. Yeah, so I think there's a, it's probably like in our our country, you've got like the uh, uh, secretariat, who kind of works in the office and does the day-to-day things, but it's made up of bishops all over the country. I think the Congregation for Divine Worship is similar. It has an office in uh, Rome that does, Cardinal Seurat is the current uh, uh, cardinal prefect of that, Mm -hmm. and they're always on site, always fully devoted to this. But the congregation itself includes bishops from all around the world. They have consultors, right? Who yeah, but these are the no, place? no. But these are not just consultors; they're full members. So I think uh, like uh, Bishop Saratelli in New Jersey mm-hmm. is a member of the Congregation ah, for okay. Divine Worship, but he doesn't do that full time. Like, He's running Cardinal Supich is on the Congregation for Bishops, but that's not his full time job, right? Right, so, right. Okay. So this a plenary assembly of the congreg- of this congregation is everybody who's uh, somehow uh, involved with it. So, so he, yeah. yeah. He says, cardinals, dear brothers in the episcopate, and the priesthood, and brothers and sisters. So lots of different kinds of folks there. Yeah, and the, there's a couple of reasons why uh, he's doing this well, What's right the now. date of this? 14th of February, 2019. Oh, that, this just happened. This is like hot off the ouch. Presses are still hot. To <laughs> and what was February 14th? Uh, the Feast Day. of St. Valentine's Day in, a, diff, in a different right. No, no. Oh, <laughs> Cyril and Methodius. No. Yes. February 14th. No, that's right. 2019. Don't know me. The 50th anniversary of, of Trial of, no. of Musicum Pascales. That's what I was going to say yeah. next. 
So this is the Mysterii Pascales was the uh, the apost is an apostolic something or other constitution that Paul VI wrote promulgating the uh, revised calendar for the Roman Missal. Okay, mm -hmm. so this is a key thing because in 1969, so we're going to hit a lot of these uh, anniversaries, uh, in November 30th, 1969, was when the Novus Ordo became effective. Okay? Mm -hmm. So part of the, the Roman Missal is the calendar, and so February 14th in 1969. Oh, we're coming up on the 50-year anniversary of that, too. Yeah, so you have the calendar on this date, which he was talking about. Uh, April 3rd, 1969 was when Paul VI uh, actually promulgated the missile, and then it became effective on uh, November 30th. So, mm. so this is a kind of a big anniversary year for... For you and me, Chris. <laughs> you, we're both going to turn 5-0. You're going to turn 5-0 this year? Either. Oh, you're going to turn 49 much this year. No, I will be big 5-0 this okay. year. So it's, uh, it, he was kind of uh, riffing on that a little bit, that this was, uh, he mentions this uh, in his address. But in this, uh, I don't know, they must do this every year? Is it an annual thing? But they were talking about the uh, ostensible topic was the liturgical formation of the people of God. Oh, the hey, I like this. We're all about the liturgical formation of the people of Gad, as you say in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. That's so, right. people of Gad. So, he, uh, he begins this uh, address. Oh, it comes at a significant time, and then he goes into all of these things. Uh, but when he talks about, right, in this kind of era of at least 50, especially 50 years ago, and over the past 50 years, what were they trying to do? He says, the praying tradition of the church needed renewed expressions mm -hmm. without losing anything of its millennial wealth. That is an awesome phrase. It is. I it could is. use some millennial hear? wealth myself. <laughs> and, and yet, even rediscovering... <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Thank you very much. Even rediscovering the treasures of its origin, you could rediscover your treasures too. Jason. See, but what's he mixing around in here, right? He's, he's, he's referencing the tr original treasures, the praying tradition, and the millennial wealth. Okay, so he's talking about, uh, this is, he's seeing the, even though this is renewed expressions, it's in the context of the, the old tradition. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Okay. So, the, and this is very Vatican too. We had great treasures somewhere along the line of history. They got covered up, multiplied unnecessarily or taken away. And what do we need? We need to find them again and bring them out and shine them up so that everybody can encounter them. And so this sort of says all that too. And they did a bunch of stuff, all these documents you just mentioned, Chris. And he mm -hmm. said they were the first steps of a journey to be continued with wise constancy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so we know that, he continues, it is not enough. To, this is a common Pope Francis theme. Uh, we know that it is not enough to change liturgical books to improve the quality of the liturgy. Who else said that? Benedict the Sixteenth. Probably, and John Paul II, right? Yeah. In Machismus Quintus Annus. He said, we don't, the books are reformed. We don't need to change them anymore. But we need to live them, and we need to live them in their spiritual depth. So there's a real constant sense of the, saying the same thing as popes very frequently do. For life to be a truly praise pleasing to God, it is indeed necessary to change the heart. Yeah, that's you can the truth. You use whatever book you want, but if your heart is not changed, it doesn't really matter. Well, that and much, even right? you know who else said this actually, uh, who's a relative to uh, Pope Francis is Romano Gardini. Mm -hmm. right? You might remember that uh, famous letter that he wrote in 1964. It's famous, is, Jesse. It is famous. It is famous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To Lake Como. Uh, that's a different no, one. No, that's okay. a different one. Sorry. Sorry. That's yeah. another that, famous That's a book letter. called uh, Letters from uh, Lake Como, I mm -hmm. think. Letters to Perry Como. <laughs> the, uh, no, in uh, 1964, there was this famous German, well, I don't know if it's famous, but this letter is famous. There was this German liturgical conference, 
Right, so this is happening during the Second Vatican Council, like six months after Sacrosanctum Concilium. I bet that place was exciting. Oh, a I German liturgical conference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Gardini says, sorry. Yeah, he didn't think so either. So, uh, sorry I can't be with <laughs> can't you. I just it. had to send this letter. <laughs> he wasn't even there. No, he wasn't ah, there. That's man. why he sends this letter. But he still I wanted to say a few things. Yeah, and one of the things he wanted to say is, you, uh, without you know, changing the mind and the heart of the participant, all the changes to the ritual aren't going to do any bit of good. Mm, I like I change it. all the books you want, but unless you change uh, the, the participant, then, you know, it's going to be for, for naught. And so this is Pope Francis's entry to the, remember the topic of this is the liturgical formation of the people of God. Oh, we were just talking about this in um, the Sacrosanctum Concilium episode about the intelligence of worshiping, you know, knowing the things uh, the, the sacraments episode. Yeah, I mean, so so the rite can um, uh, make it easier or more difficult for the person to understand and participate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the the and in fact, um, Dennis, the early liturgical movement. Yes, Chris. Right, you know this. Uh, yes, Chris. Had almost nothing to do with changing rites. Yes, it was Chris. all about changing people. Yes, Chris. Oh, come on. I'm doing it right. I'm serious. I'm so just being this, goofy. this is yes, yeah. Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Jesse. Don't patronize me. <laughs> Okay, so the true liturgical movement isn't necessarily about changing books, although with the council this was the case. It's still about changing participants' minds and hearts. Right, and he says this is a conversion experience, and if it's going to happen liturgically, you have to encounter the God of the living. And this is always this encounter language. This is what sacraments do. They're efficacious signs, but it's an encounter. Hello, Jesse. Yeah, you still awake? Uh, no, I'm... <sighs> Oh, yeah, efficacious sign encounter with the living God. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah, still yeah, thinking about the German boring. liturgy conference. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet they had good beer though. <laughs> encounter thing in its fullness leads to conversion. And whatever book you're using, you know, I used to think sacraments were just like uh, quasi. Yeah, but it turns out it's an encounter with a person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and right? that person is God. And he he says something interesting here. He's telling this plenary uh, group. Your work is aimed at helping the Pope to carry out his ministry for the benefit of the Church at Prayer over the, all the earth. I don't know if we think of that often, the, the responsibility of a Pope to make sure that God is worshipped properly everywhere on earth. <laughs> That's kind of a big job. Have a nice day. Yeah, it's hard enough to do it in you know a university setting, never mind across the whole earth. So he says, hey, you people in the plenary thing, this is your job to help me do that. And talks about how he wants cooperation and dialogue and synodality with all the various bishops' conferences in different places, which is something that's been big for him. Uh, make sure there's cooperation between the Holy See and the bishops' conference, and not just the Holy See kind of running uh, roughshod over the local well, needs. We talked about this in another podcast too about who reform, who are the agents or who are the overseers of the liturgy. Right? Whoops. Is it the Pope or is it the the different bishops? And in the tradition. Uh, the we've seen both. It was the bishops until Trent when it was handed to the Pope, and now uh, the Second Vatican Council still has a certain amount of uh, uh, papal oversight. But what, what Pope Francis is talking about here right, is the, um, this collegiality with local bishops' conferences. What was that motu proprio he talked about? Manium to, Principium. Manium Principium, yeah. right, that, that really kind of put the onus of, uh, of and responsibility back on local bishops rather than, it's, hey, it's not the Congregation for Divine Worship's job, right. even though they're in collaboration. So he's restating himself, but then he gets into some meaty, juicy... Are, is, are you salivating? I am. Waiting to hear it's this. It's the foretaste of more Pope Francis quotes. Here we find also the challenge of formation. What is the challenge? Is what does he it, name? Oh. The liturgy. Is, is, I'm assuming the challenge is being able to do the things that he said we should be doing. 
Right, but what he sees is the first thing not to forget when you look at the challenge of forming liturgically the people of God is that, quote, the liturgy is life that forms, not an idea to be learned. Ah, so good, right? You could um, you can hear Romano Guardini breathing through this, right? When he talked about the playfulness of the liturgy and the seriousness of the liturgy. The playfulness of the liturgy is to walk around in this kind of in total sea of glorious, divinized things where the praise of God is being sung and the things that you see, touch, smell are all around you and you're sort of walking around in the liturgical jacuzzi that I like to talk about. It's not just a bunch of ideas to memorize. It's a thing to be lived. Kind of like family life or parenthood or marriage or whatever. It's not just read a book about it, but live it in its fullness. Well, and again, uh, think of the, the emphasis on the cognitive div- dimensions of liturgical reform. You know, about sacramental signs should be easily understood and should not require much explanation. Isn't that, isn't that a line mm-hmm, from Okay. Mm-hmm. And useless repetition should be removed and things like that. Uh, and to a degree, that's right. But the liturgy isn't this type of classroom didacticism. It's, it's not about ideas. It's about a larger kind of environment. Right. If God showed up right now, if our ceiling blew open and the light of heaven came down and the song of the angels we could hear and we could see the face of God, whoa. Something huge just happened. I now know what heaven is like. I didn't read a book, right? I encountered this reality. And so he says that it's important to note this, that it's not really about polarizations or other various kind of fights that people make about the liturgy, but it's about this encounter with the living God in the liturgy itself. Well, this is also, there's one more before we leave this point, uh, Deus Caritas Est, written by, it was the very first encyclical by Pope Benedict. In the very first paragraph, he says, almost something exactly. That being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a worldview or an idea. It's about the encounter with an event, a person. Yeah, but couldn't you say that having, you know, you know following the rules and the rubrics and stuff um, creates the best possible encounter? It, uh, I would say for most, uh, I don't know. It safeguards I mean, why did, the possibility for encounter, but it's not the encounter itself. You know, the, the, the Munera Christi, Jesse, mm-hmm. as you know, Priest, are, and King. Okay, is about knowing, loving, and serving. And in some ways, you don't serve something or someone you don't love, and it's difficult to love someone you don't know. So it does seem that there's a primacy on knowledge. But, uh, you know, I, each person will have to answer this for, for himself. I mean, how is it that you came to faith? Is it, were, you lo- were you argued logically into its veracity that made you come to truth or was there something more kind of uh i don't know existential or uh, life-changing or heartfelt it was probably a combination of a a lot of these things i mean at first it was how i was raised but then but then at the same time i had to have an encounter myself in order to you know, right, and part yes. of it's at, with, with the level of the, the head, truths. Part of it's at the level of one's heart and other things like that. Right. But what he's saying is, you know, just Christianity or its celebration in the liturgy isn't about I- simply ideas and knowledge. It's about... Uh, Man, he's holistic. putting us out of business then. No, no. <laughs> no, no that's no, very important no. stuff. You no, encounter it, it, Christ and you say, what just happened to me? And so the encounter stimulates the desire to know and they work, they work together. Um, but, you know, in typical Pope Francis fashion, this paragraph is full of, I don't know what you call them, Francisisms or snippy little I don't memorable know, I concepts. I don't know what Francisisms are. <clears throat> well, you know, he's famous for his thing that, you know, seminarians shouldn't be little monsters and, you know, oh, church okay. secretaries shouldn't be whatever he said they were. So there's, like, there's a little book of Fran- Francis, little book. Oh, of I, I get it. There. I get it. 
So, but, so he says, okay, the liturgy is encountering this reality. It's not just an abstract idea, but encounter this reality. And if it's not that, it could end up what he calls favoring sterile ideological polarizations, which often arise when we tend to adopt an attitude of perennial dialectic toward those who don't share them. Okay, what the heck does that mean? It means, if I would venture, I guess. Oh, venture. If we focus too much on those aspects of the liturgy that are the, you know, the actions thereof or following everything to the form, we're missing the target in that we're actually supposed to be encountering Christ. So, you know, having worked at the liturgical institute, now I know more things about the liturgy than I did before. And so if I'm there at mass saying, oh, that they should be using incense, there's not enough candles there, that lector is doing the wrong thing. What are you not doing? I'm not actually praying. I'm not actually joining myself with Christ on the altar. Now, that doesn't mean rubrics are not important, right? Right. Cardinal George said he founded the liturgical institute so that people could learn to worship God as he wants to be worshipped, right? And he wants to be worshipped in the best way, and there's many good ways. Uh, but if all you're doing is having these arguments with people and this dialectic, and dialectic means a back and forth uh, discussion, uh, a, a, a perennial attitude of polarization with someone who doesn't share your opinion, then you're not worshiping. You're having these sort of intellectual arguments. They're good to have, but they're not the same thing as worship. Good. Cardinal Saras said this thing too. I refuse to pit one form against another. I mean, that's just when he's talking about the two forms of the Roman Rite, for example. So that's not what it's about. You know, liturgy is meant to, you know. <laughs> Not to fester and foster these types of things. But that's not what people want to talk about. They want to talk about what's better and why. And right. Well, it's in some ways, it's easier to talk about those things than, you know, how do I get to, we talked in that divine office one, you know, how do I, that's easier than learning how to humble myself so that I can sit on the footstool, you know, before God's throne and sing, you know, even though that's much more awesome much more life-giving and besides you know this what is he called sterile and lifeless things so if you're spending too much time picking which baseball bat you need to use to play the game then you're not playing the game well there you go yeah exactly now his next sentence got it like if you're traditionally minded you got to take a breath before you hear this right because you might say oh Pope francis is against me but just listen to the words we'll be calm we'll talk about what they say so he says, um, what do we say? Starting p- perhaps from the desire to react to some insecurities in the current context. And the translation seems a little funny, but if you're worried about everything, right? Mass is not being celebrated well. The music is not good. The world's going down the tubes. Like that's a can be a reactionary position. He says, if this is what you're worried about, then we tend uh, to do we tend to risk falling back into a past that no longer exists or of escaping into a presumed future. Ooh, Ooh right? So I, that is great. He punches people in both eyes, right? So if you have an uncritical romantic view of the past as everything was better and we just have to go back to some perceived golden age, then you're not really taking into account the needs of our own time, it, especially if it's happening out of some worry that, Oh my gosh, what are we? Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. Let's go. Just let's go retreat. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, Oh, if we only did X, Y, and Z, Vatican III, Vatican IV, and did this, that, and the other thing, some sort of romantic view of a presumed future. He says, then the starting point that we should have instead is to recognize the reality of the sacred liturgy. He calls it a living treasure that cannot be reduced to tastes, recipes, and currents, but which should be welcomed with docility and promoted with love. And what is it not, Chris? 
He it says, is not the field of do it yourself. Open quote, feel, it's not the field of do it yourself, close quote. In other words, uh, just whatever you want. It's not an expression of you, but here's a good word, good phrase. But the epiphany of ecclesial communion. Wow, there's a lot there. What's a, what is an epiphany, Chris? An epiphanic. Well, it's just, it's a showing, uh, showing out, revealing a manifestation of uh, of what's there of ecclesial communion, communion rather than opposing dialectics. And what is ecclesial communion? It's the membership it's of the mystical, mystical body, body of, Christ, of Christ, acting as one Christ in unity, praising God as perfectly as they can. Unity in worship. Unity in worship, because the Christ, there's one Christ who worships God perfectly. Now there could be many legitimate variations of that, but ideally, with any. Within any ecclesial communion, you should all be having the right intention to be Christ to and worship Christ as the members of that mystical body. And if all you're doing is running around the edges, arguing, poking each other in the eye, and giving each other black eyes about you're this, you're that, and you're, you should do it right, blah, 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 then what you're not doing is worshiping and not making an epiphany of ecclesial union. Now, it's totally worth having conferences, writing books, articles, talking about it, podcasts, the, all those things to come to the fullness of the truth. Nothing wrong with that. However, none of that can substitute for liturgy itself. That is awesome. Chris I really is like nodding that. away at that. I like it when no, Chris I, says yes, and he's speechless. He's, he's no, nodding away. What, he's sleeping. No, no, no. <laughs> what, what struck me in that line, the starting point is instead to recognize the reality of the sacred liturgy. You remember that sacramental theology class we did, Jesse? Yeah. What, what is the uh, res sacramenti? Ooh, can you pass the exam? What is the reality of Yeah, res means reality. Okay, and sacramenti. What's the reality of the sacraments in the liturgy? It's to become Christ. Jesus. So that Christ can Jesus. become us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that he is the reality of everything uh, sacramental. And so uh, he's the living treasure that cannot be reduced to my taste, your recipes, and Dennis's currents. I mean, that, 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 that's so uh, after the fact, you know, but starting with the, the reality, which is Christ. Right. And so romantic return to a supposed golden age, uh, what he calls the nostalgic past now, I love the tradition. I was going to what we call extraordinary form way before there was an extraordinary form. You're like a hipster liturgist. Yeah. Like when I was 16. Before I, it was I was cool. like begging my mom to let me to go to the Latin mass <laughs> instead of our local parish. She thought I was crazy. Can you imagine at these, you know, you're, you're a millennial, so you would probably like it if your kids did that. Mm-hmm. But my mom was a boomer. It's like, why is my kid wanting to go to Latin mass? It's kind of weird. So I'm deeply appreciative of that. There's nothing wrong with respect for tradition and bringing it forward. However, if it's merely nostalgic, right, and not theologically rooted in making the mystery present in its fullness, then you start saying, "Mm, the reasons aren't exactly right. Sometimes romanticism you need, right? You need romance to... uh, to survive uh, a marriage, say, right, to get past the ugliness of your own time. But if it's only romance, then you're not doing the theological thing. Yeah. Now, here was my, my take on this, Okay. which is maybe not at all what he means. Uh, the past isn't simply, you know, 1925, because well, I think there's some people who have a, a nostalgic attachment to 1985. Yeah, me too. Okay. That was a good year. Or 1978. Well, worse. Exactly. And the liturgy isn't about uh, uh, going back to the <laughs> glory days of 1978 or 1985. Ripping the brown paneling off the wall Absolutely of your den. Not. Right? So, it, because in, he starts off, right, as we said before, he talks about the praying tradition right? and uh, without losing any of its millennial wealth. Mm-hmm. Right, so what we do today, I mean, this, this would be, I suppose, what we would call this hermeneutic of continuity. Hear that, millennials? Reform. The Pope wants your wealth. Man, That's... I really need some millennial wealth. <laughs> right. So, I mean, is, is uh, uh, singing Gregorian chant 
um, uh, uh, a mere looking back to the nostalgic past. Maybe, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. It could say, I understand liturgically that chant is this rendering the mystery more fully than some other song we could sing. And then you have a good theological logic. Or it could just be, I like old stuff, right? And I like old stuff is not a theological position. Because anybody can like whatever golden age they want. They could hit well, you see, over the head with it. You're right. So then it's, it's being reducible to, what does he say? What did he say before? Uh, currents, tastes, and uh, recipes. recipes, right? And your taste might be 1987, and yours might be 1972, and yours might be 1872. And well, that, that, that's, uh, that's not what the liturgy is about. Right. So primarily you say, how can we look at all of history and find out what is the best way to make the face of God manifested? How can we best sacramentalize and live the, the mystical body of Christ? You know, uh, in another podcast, we talked about how difficult it was, right, to make the language of the liturgy be just right, right? So it's not too didactic, too cognitive. Um, Are you talking about the peat and repeat? The rep- no, repetition? no, no. A more recent. Oh, okay, we, got we, it. You know how do how do you get the the liturgy to speak a language that is understandable yet poetic and powerful and mysterious? It's revelatory and secret at the same time. How do you do that? Well, if the three of us or any three persons had to figure out how to do that, that would be very hard. But see, the church has been working on this uh, for thousands of years, right? So she's got, uh, she, she's been, w- with divine inspiration, trying to find a suitable language uh, in her sacraments and signs and languages and words and music and all of the rest that can say these, that can be characterized by these types of uh, uh, features. So yeah, it would be very difficult for the three of us, but the church has, have, has a divinely inspired track record to make this happen. And that's where the treasury of the past comes in, right? We have 2,000 years of people writing great prayers that we can pick the best and carry them forward. You know, our rector here, Father John Karchi, is uh, fond of saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, because if he huh. says one thing, people, what does that mean? If he says this, does that mean X, Y, Z, one, two, three? So I think it's a good way to read Pope Francis. Don't hear what he's not saying when he talks about how a return to the nostalgic past can sometimes be problematic, right? Because people might say, what does that mean? Is he going to squash the extraordinary form? What does that mean? He doesn't like tradition? No, nostalgic return, when it truly is that and not a theological choice, is actually what, well, what he says. Uh, there's a risk of placing the part before the whole, my preferences before the needs of the church, the I before the people of God, the abstract before the concrete, ideology before communion, right? I am conservative, I am liberal, as opposed to I'm a member of the mystical body and want to make that knowable and sacramentalized in the world. Okay, so as he goes on then to talk about the liturgical formation, uh, what does he say here? The, the task that awaits us is indeed essentially that of spreading among the people of God the splendor of the living mystery of the Lord who makes himself manifest in the liturgy. What's a living mystery? Uh, the living mystery. What's well, a mystery? <laughs> the mystery is, uh, I suppose, what he means um, uh, in, this, uh, in this context, right? When St. Paul talks about the mystery of God, this, the design of God from before all ages to, uh, to create and to save and to redeem, the central chapter being the, the mystery of Christ, uh, and then now carried on in the church until we, the final chapters uh, back in, uh, in heaven. That's the plan of the mystery. And so right. this living mystery is how, I suppose... You know, uh, how do the people encounter that mystery in the liturgy? Which I think is made that's a phrase easy to blow by, living mystery, uh, church language. But 
mysterion, right? Greek is the equivalent, more or less, of sacrament mm. in Latin, mm -hmm. right? And what's a sacrament? It's the breaking through of otherwise unencounterable, spiritual, efficacious, life-changing realities that are living, right? So what's a living mystery? It's the face of God who says, here I am, right? <laughs> or, Ooh, here I am. <laughs> I want your life to be every, ever different, ever better, ever more loving, ever in deeper union with me. This is a living mystery. And if it just becomes... I like old stuff. Wow, that is a lot different than encountering a living mystery. However, you can like old stuff. The old stuff might be a better way of sacramentalizing the living mystery, but it's the primacy of the living mystery being known that comes before anybody's personal preference. What is a sacrament anyway, Jesse? It's a um, yeah. outward sign of inward realities. Okay, this is where he goes next. Right, because uh, you know this this mysterion, this breaking through, this encounter with Christ that leads to conversion in the liturgy. Uh, so he gets down to uh, brass tacks. He says, in order for the liturgy to fulfill its formative and transforming function, it is necessary that the pastors and the laity be introduced to their meaning and symbolic language, including art, song, and music in the service of the mystery celebrated, even silence. Right. So he's talking about the liturgy is this sacramental symbolic medium and music art and whatnot and it's through that that the people come to uh to this encounter with christ and undergo conversion yeah this would be uh ring especially uh true for liturgical institute uh, yeah. types what's he talking about here well, this encountering of the realities through the outward signs of art and so well, on. Well, go back to your, uh, was it this podcast you're quoting, uh, Cardinal George, about uh, worship is... Worshiping God as he wants to be worshipped. Okay, worshiping and what did, what did Cardinal George want to emphasize? What did he see was lacking that he wanted to uh, address in founding the liturgical institute? That we were probably worshiping God the way we wanted to worship yeah, him. Yeah, but there's... A, there's a, so, so how do you go about that? There's the, one... The sacramental theology of the church as expressed in the church's liturgical books. Right, so it's through the it's you can you can approach uh, ritual formation like they're talking about here, ritual studies in a variety of ways through sociology or political yeah. gender, whatever historical. But the, the meanwhile, the the nub, the real central element that brings the people and the mystery of God together are these sacramental signs, art, music. And the rest, and even silence. And do they sacramentalize the face of God, sort of so-so? Or, wow. And do they sacramentalize the face of God or something else, right? So mm -hmm. this is where sacramentalization of things really matters. And again, nostalgic arguments are not the same questions as how can we best sacramentalize something. In fact, Pope Francis says it here, liturgical formation cannot be limited to knowledge, simply offering knowledge, even guarding the fulfillment of the ritual disciplines, right? So know the missal, great. Know and do the rubrics, great, but that is not enough. What do we need? We need to encounter the mystery through these things, which is called what, Jesse? The encountering of the mystery through the signs, from the signs to the mysteries, from to Sacrament. lead, to, lead to the mystery. Oh, Mr. Goji. Yeah, Mr. Gaji. What's up, yo? <laughs> Mr. And Mrs. Gaji, here we are. So he says, the Catechism of the Catholic Church itself adopts the mystical way to illustrate the liturgy, valuing its prayers and signs, mystagogy. This is the suitable way to enter the mystery of the liturgy, where you're led from the outward sign or symbol or sacramental expression into the infinite reality that it contains. So your wife makes you a nice dinner, fluffs your pillow, puts a rose petal on it, buys you a birthday present, gives you a back rub. 
They're all external actions. So what? You say, ah, now I know my wife loves me, right? You're led from the outside. You can tell who the single guy is. Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't this happen those, every day in Those examples were non-existent. <laughs> Another day in paradise. Starting, that, with, starting with making dinner. Come on, Kim and Marguerite. Don't make a liar out of me. Do some stuff here for your husband, right? You know, but, this, this all makes me think of um, this conversation that I had with a relative of mine who was around before, um, before the council. And, you know, we were having a discussion about you know, the extraordinary form and the Novus Ordo. And um, she had asked me about Adorientum and whether or not we should be doing Adorientum and all of that. And so kind of midway through the conversation, I, I stopped and I said, look, before you can talk about Adorientum, you really have to understand what's actually happening on the altar. And so I asked her, you know, what, what, what is happening? And she says, well, you know, Jesus Christ becomes present and becomes the Eucharist. And I said, well, yeah, but... Uh, talking, I, I talked a little bit about actually, you know, putting yourself on the on the patent. You know, the priest then sacrifices, you know, elevates the Eucharist, then it becomes Christ, and Christ perfects everything in you, and then you consume that perfection. And uh, and she was like, "Wow, no, nobody's ever told me that before." And, and that, she's on the patent too, right? And 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 the thing is, that was not a conversation about rights or you know whether we should hold hands during the Our Father or whether the priest should say or do say or do this. It was about what is what are we doing in the liturgy? And that was that was an encounter beyond you know liking old stuff. Or, See, nine times out of this is a good example. I think nine times out of ten, if you're going to talk about ad orientum, it's going to be from the perspective of sterile ideological polarizations. I like old stuff. Let's do it I, like they I, did it. I like old stuff. I hate old stuff. Whatever it is, it's going to be reduced to somebody's tastes, recipes, and currents. Mm-hmm. Okay, but when you start to talk about it like you're doing, that you have this uh, infinite mystery, Paschal mystery being made present in signs, for example, facing east, okay, now you're starting to, to value, or you're at least in the right arena to discuss from a symbolic, sacramental, mystagogical, spiritual point, you know, the value of, uh, of that particular yes, the direction. Yes, twink- the, the Scandinavian twinkle in your eye, Chris. That's like often comment <laughs> when you're talking about, I, uh, about these things. I am going to put this podcast in my back pocket in terms of my top favorite podcast episodes, really? right, right along with the oh, uh, metaphysical and Pete and repeat. Those are my other two favorites. I, this was great. This is, was, was really amazing, and I think... It's really easy to just hold on to those tangible things of the rights. You know, this is what to do. Do this, 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 and this. But unless we're focusing on what's actually happening in the liturgy, then, then we're actually missing out. This is how you discuss it with your friends, right? What are we actually doing? Who are we talking to? We look at the person we talk to. What is a chalice? What is an altar? This is all my favorite ontological uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. But the ontological discussion is there because we want to encounter the mystery. And the better the mystery, the better the sign conveys the mystery, the more transformative, more efficacious yeah. it is for us. We like tangible things. Right, but but the reason we they're so important is because they're porters and manifestations of otherwise intangible things. That's why it's so important. And so at the end, the Pope says to sum this all up, brothers and sisters, uh, priests should know a lot about this. Right, prime need is to teach the clergy. But then he says, you have before you a great and beautiful task: colon to work so that the people of God may rediscover the beauty of meeting the Lord in the celebration of his mysteries and by meeting him have life in his name. This is mystagogy, right? The, the, the signs of the mass, 
this song, this gesture, this vestment, this building are going to reveal the Lord. And if they reveal the Lord in a way that's sort of boring and humdrum and not very deep, then so what, right? I'm not changed by that. Walk away. However, if you actually meet the Lord, if they become sacraments of the face of God in the form of ritual and all the things that we do, then they might have life in his name. That's the goal. That's the bottom line. And if all you're saying is, I like old stuff, I like new stuff, I hate this, I hate that, what is the music director doing, blah, 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 then you're not encountering the face of God. And so it's always this full organization that has to come together. Priest, mm-hmm. people, reader, musicians, how can we all sacramentalize the realities of the face of God so we can all be transformed and have life in his name? Jesse's getting fidgety. I'm not getting fidgety. You ready? Are no, I'm, 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 I think like, he's excited. Oh, there's nothing more to say. Than I am that. on fire the right end now. End of the day. Well, there is one thing to say. What's that? The answer to the liturgy question. Yes. Send us a liturgy. Well, give us a liturgy question, <laughs> Jesse. I bet you thought you were going to listen to a Bishop Barron ad not or, or like time, a Scott Hahn ad. Not this time. No, it's a different ad. Have you ever wished, Jesse, that you could take courses with the content of the Liturgy Guys and the Liturgical Institute in the very comfort of your own home? I, I have not, but that's because I work here. But oh, darn. I, I can imagine what it would be like if I did. Well, for those who do, we now have online courses we could call personal enrichment continuing education on various topics four of them are come i'll be up there soon two are there right now two there now and by march 19th there will be three more so five total uh lots of dennis and chris goodness so you can go to www.liturgy.online three with me ha 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 only two is chris so it's a little competition please register and mostly for for dennis's for my classes we have a big thermometer on the wall and i want chris to lose so please go watch Sacramental Aesthetics, right? Study of Beauty in the Liturgy, one's on music documents in the Liturgy, and then the next one will be on active participation and what Vatican II really meant by that term. And Chris, did you want to add anything? Nope. He wants to know where they go to uh, find these online. www.liturgy.online. Excellent. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? class anyone oh jesse i hear you have a beautiful question for me i do have a beautiful question this is from keith and keith i'm just going to summarize this so sorry this is not exact um keith says i'm curious about the appropriateness of particular painting styles for liturgical art i understand that most sacred art has been less realistic and more classical slash idealized because we are depicting saints in heaven who are perfected with no more fallen nature Though, there has been plenty of more, more so naturalistic sacred art as well, such as Caravaggio. Do you think this is proper for contemporary uh, sacred slash liturgical art? It certainly would look ancient, though I think it's still beautiful. I also think it may be too, quote-unquote, technique, where the artist's hand is seen too much, mm-hmm. which can distract from the saint being depicted. And uh, he says, I'd be curious as to what you think. Why don't I take this? Yeah, this you, you go on. Definitely has Chris written all over it. Well, you know, I tend to hang around in, in uh, platonic, iconic land when I think of images, right? This is my platonic mindset. On the other hand, there is definitely an Aristotelian view of the world, right? So the divine perfection comes down and we get to encounter it, but there's also our bottom-up, earthly-up uh, approach to God slowly, you know, becoming divinized as opposed to seeing the divinized completion. So the way that I deal with this question is naturalism or showing saints in the their actual life in a like supreme moment of their life totally legitimate thing but it falls into the category usually of devotional art and so devotional art will be more human just like devotions accentuate the our humanity and the humanity of christ 
when you talk about liturgical art, that is art in the sanctuary, in the ceiling, in the apse of a church behind the altar, then you're talking about the heavenly beings who are part of the worshiping assembly, and they're in heaven, and they're showing their perfected reality. And so that would be this iconic view. So I don't know that either one of them is always better or always worse. It just depends what you're trying to do. If you have a little chapel, and it's the chapel of whoever, and it's a life cycle of St. John Paul II, well, you're not going to show him in his heavenly condition when he's breaking rocks in the mine (laughs) that the Nazis put him in, although you might show him slightly iconicized to show that his life is a divinized life and his growth in uh, saintliness is happening even there. You don't just paint the picture of, you know, the the reality as it might have been. It's not naturalistic or photorealistic. Naturalistic means it looks like what it is, but then you can raise it and elevate it. So that's how I sort these things out. Um, You have your perfection in the perfected places, liturgy, the liturgical areas, liturgical things. You have more naturalism in the devotional things. And then if you put everything in the right place, you have the right kind of art for it, then you're pretty much on track. And there's a place for both of those. Absolutely. I got it. Right. Except... What often happens is people just paint the naturalistic portrait of the model in funny clothes and they call that saint whoever. And that's a problem. So part of the reason I bring that up at all is to show that saints in heaven have a quality that we can perceive in art that we call sacramental or in a sacramental way that we're pulling the realities of our heavenly future through matter back into our own time. We can encounter what a saint looks like in their heavenly perfection and not just what they looked like on their path to salvation. And so then we get this sense of encounter with an aspect of the mystical body in glory. And that's what the job of an icon is. And so uh, depending where you come from and what your temperament is, you might like seeing the saint in their process and seeing some Caravaggio of a, of a moment of discovery with light and shadow across the surface of a person in a dark room and seeing the light of Christ breaking into our darkness. On the other hand, your temperament might be, I want to go hang around in the heavenly Jerusalem and see what that fullness looks like and ponder that and have my senses calmed as I have a sort of uh, ascetic discipline of the eye to see not what stimulates my emotions, but what allows me to have my soul at rest in my own hope for my eschatological future. They're both beautiful ways to ponder the mysteries of Christ, and they're different, and they're good, and they operate in different places. Chris, was that what you were going to yeah, say? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Pretty much. Sounds good. I love I get to answer a question finally. <laughs> All right. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.